You're listening to the Debunked Daily Podcast with Mike Bolton. Uncovering the truth behind the news, we dive deeper down the rabbit hole, shedding light on ways to thrive outside of the system in this strange new world. Okay, what's up guys? Welcome to episode 28 of Debunk Daily. It's been a while, uh, just kind of got carried away with the rest of life and uh, all this, uh, all the crazy happenings uh, of this world today, um, including uh, some issues that I've uh, personally had with uh, various businesses uh, primarily a private bus company uh, in regards to uh, mask exemptions. And I'm going to be going through the, the legal or lawful process on uh, holding them accountable for that. But that is uh, another story for another episode. Um, but that, that will be an interesting one in the future. But today's episode is going to be about the SPARS pandemic document. As I said, I want this season to be about uh, think tanks, simulation events like uh, Event 201, and uh, these documents like the SPARS pandemic document, the uh, Rockefeller document scenarios for a... uh, uh, future scenarios for a tech, uh, technological world. It, it's something is it's something along that name. Don't have it uh, right in front of me here. Um, there's that. There's Crimson Contagion is another document. Um, of course, I mentioned simulation events. They had Event Two Hundred One. There's other simulation events, but uh, those are just some of them off the top of my head. And today, I want to get into. The Spars pandemic document. So this one also took a little bit of time to put together as well. Um, it's not just some, it's not the type of episode I can just do off the top of my head and wing it and all this. I had to uh, go through this document and, and make some notes to really kind of pull uh, the best or the... Um, <laughs> the most relative and craziest uh, parts of this document in, in, in regards to how it relates to what's going on right now. Uh, if, you don't, if you don't know anything about the Spars Pandemic document, well, the way I would sum it up, and of course you're, you're about to find out a lot more, but the way I would sum it up if I was giving someone the 30-second elevator pitch on what exactly it is, uh, well, right off the bat, the cover says uh, the Spars pandemic 2025 to 2028. Now, keep in mind that date there, 2025 to 2028, this is supposed to be, <laughs> quote unquote, supposed to be hypothetical. So they're using like this date as a sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, a scenario or a hypothetical date in which a, a pandemic could happen, right? Basically, 
I would almost think of 2025 as 2020 and perhaps 2028 is 2023. However, I have heard and actually seen, um, I've seen on, I believe it's like a world economic, economic forum um, page that's even apparently available online and it actually shows a 2025 budget deadline for COVID-19. So yeah, it's a pandemic, as many of us know. Um, but anyway, the sparse pandemic 2025 to 2028, uh, then it says a future, a futuristic scenario for public health risk communicators. Uh, it's by the John Hopkins Center for Health Security. And if I was to sum it up quickly, it is, it primarily deals with how public health officials and let's just say like the ruling class, the controllers, politicians, mainstream media, the establishment, how all these people will sort of mitigate and um, suppress information, um, mitigate problems that arise. And when I say problems that arise, I mean specifically also with like social media. This document deals a lot with social media and how people in our movement, the truther community, uh, freedom movement, people who uh, the mainstream media would call anti-vaxxers and all this, basically people that uh, throw a, a monkey wrench into their plans and, and get in the way of them uh, completing their agenda and getting a, a one world uh, totalitarian government and getting everyone fucking jabbed, wearing a mask, digital identity, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> the rebellion or whatever. It It deals a lot with like how they will suppress us, censor us, um, mitigate various problems in that, in, in the kind of like communications area of things, whether it be social media, uh, you know, anything, billboards, any style of like, uh, marketing and advertising, let's say, but they also deal with how they're going to market and advertise, um, what they called, uh, spars, right. But you can just pretty much call it COVID because this is this document what you're going to see correlates almost 100% to everything that's going on now. Like there, there's certain things that are different because they got to keep some stuff different. Otherwise people will be like, okay, what the fuck? Come on guys. What do you, this is basically a blueprint for this and don't get me wrong. It still reads like a blueprint, but, um, yeah. So it deals with like how they're going to market and advertise and pump out a certain like pump out propaganda that, uh, you know, makes people want to take the jab, makes people believe that, uh, you know, the St. Paul's acute respiratory um, virus is uh, is a real thing or that COVID-19 is a real thing and it makes people want to take the jab and all this. But it also talks about how uh, people in our community, how they were communicating in this like hypothetical scenario, which essentially is how they... Uh, are 
are predicting predicting how we in this community will communicate and spread the word and how they can essentially uh, mitigate that and make sure that uh, dangerous misinformation isn't spread and, and all of this. So without further ado, <laughs> let's get into it. But uh, yeah, that gives you a brief inter- introduction. Again, it's by the John Hopkins uh, University. Now, <laughs> you'll also notice there's a lot of peer-reviewed studies that come out of John Hopkins University. So, isn't that also funny? The next page, it goes on to uh, just list off some of the people that are part of this, of the project team. Um it's a bunch of uh, like academic types here. We have people with PhDs and and this all from the uh, from John Hopkins Center for Health Security. Um, it's crazy though. They get these academic types in a room to sit down and uh, and discuss these things, and I don't know. I don't know exactly like how this how this uh works this is my interpretation of how these like uh think tanks or documents are essentially formed is like um i feel like these people i i don't think that every single one of them really knows what they're participating in i just don't uh, i just don't see it working like that um it's like when you tell someone like you know, if you tell someone about COVID, like a, a normie type, right? Uh, they don't know what's going on and you're trying to explain to them like what's really happening in the world right now. And usually when you begin to explain some of this, right, you might, uh, you'll use different things, uh, ways of describing it. You'll say like, uh, you know, there's kind of like a global oligarchy. Uh, there's like powerful... Uh, a ruling class in every in every country around the world, right? It's not just like politicians running the show, da 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 da. And um, you could say, you know, COVID, uh, it might be, it could be a real virus, and you might say something like that to kind of like ease the the blow for them. Could be a real virus and all this. Is it a pandemic? Probably not. And you say, uh, but. You can see one thing I think we can all agree on is that the uh, the response from politicians and government has been very odd, right? These lockdowns, these masks, this isn't like anything ever before. Uh, do you think that's a little bit weird, right? You ask them a little question, da 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 da. Maybe they even admit, yeah, I do think it's kind of weird. I do notice that the politicians are a little more corrupt these days, da 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 da. But usually when you get into the more heavy stuff, their defense mechanisms go up and the thing that they'll say is like, okay, but that, that sounds crazy. That sounds like a conspiracy theory. I don't see how, how all these people could be, um, working. What, so, so what, you just think that every doctor in the world is like in on this massive agenda to like vaccinate everyone and depopulate and, uh, and, uh, gain more control over the people and all this, da, 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 da. And make all this profit and, and stuff. And like the answer I would give them in that moment, and it's going to tie back to what I'm talking about here, is no. I, 
I don't think that. And I see, I've come more to, to the idea of how this like really works within our society is that there's only a very small, 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 small percentage of people who actually know what the true agenda is. But you get, you have these people who are kind of like, say high ranking people or like, you know, the, let's not even say high ranking, but they're like the PhD types within, um, you know, this project team within John Hopkins University. You know, they're, they're, they're smart people, relatively smart people, like they're book smart and this and that. Clearly, they probably don't have the best critical thinking skills, um, but they get them to participate in these um, documents and these think tanks by telling them that, you know, this is a hypothetical scenario. You're going to help to save lives if we ever do um, have a, a pandemic in the future and, and all this, you know, would you like to participate in this? We'll pay you well. It's very prestigious. Looks great on the resume, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like, and these types are already super indoctrinated, indoctrinated anyway. So they probably fully buy it. Let's be honest. Let's take a look at the population. And uh, there's a, yes, of course, there are some doctors who are, who spoke out about COVID, but there's so many who fully went along with it. Right. Uh, and then there's also those who go along with it because even though they have a, a funny feeling about it, they're like, they don't want to lose their job and all this. And it works the same way with this. You know, everything changes when, uh, you know, Emily K. Brunson of, uh, of John Hopkins University. She's part of the project team here. PhD. Um, Associate professor says as well, if she's getting, you know, I don't know, 150K a year, likes this job, gets some extra money for participating in, in this, like, you know, money makes the world go round. And a lot of people uh, sell out and, and do things, even if, it, if they do have a funny feeling about it, you know, they tell themselves a little lie. <laughs> anyway. John Hopkins, uh, another thing to note here, it's, there's like Michael Bloomberg, he's, he's definitely like a, uh, I don't know, um, uh, a one percenter or a 0.01 percenter, uh, like ruling class, uh, um, like corporate type guy. Uh, he, um, he has funded John Hopkins University, it says John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public, Public Health and, and then under and Center for uh, Health Security. So like some of their funding comes from Michael Bloomberg. Um, and oh, he owns like Bloomberg as in like the media outlet, you know, and uh, that's of course, it's all just controlled propaganda in this, but. This isn't that important, but uh, about the John Hopkins Center for uh, Health uh, Security, the John Hopkins Center for Health Security works to protect people from epidemics and disasters 
and build resilient communities through innovative scholarships, engagement, and research that strengthens organizations, systems, policies, and programs essential to preventing and responding to public health crisis. <clears throat> the center is part of the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Health and is located in Baltimore, MD. So, yeah, they, uh, they think that they stop uh, pandemics and stuff. When in reality, they're, uh, they're helping orchestrate them. Okay, and then we have uh, this part here. They even have a little disclaimer for us. This is a hypothetical scenario designed to illustrate the public health risk communication challenges that could potentially emerge during a naturally occurring infectious disease outbreak requiring development and distribution of novel and or investigational drugs, vaccines, therapeutics, or other medical countermeasures. The infectious pathogen medical countermeasures characters, news media excerpts, social media posts, and government agency responses described herein are entirely fictional. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, they correlate perfectly with what's happening in the world right now. So, so much for that. But uh, thanks for the disclaimer, guys. Okay. Let's get right into it. Um, the first... Actually, this is just the uh, preface. Uh, this starts by saying, Poss possible future in 2025, the echo chamber. Um, unbridled global access to information coupled with social fragmentation and self-affirming world views. Okay, so, so here they're describing... Um, Sort of like, well, we all have so much access to information, but what's happened here, and it will go on to say it, uh, is that people have uh, sort of also tuned out a lot of uh, media outlets and sources that they don't like because it doesn't fit their narrative, their bias, whatever, whatever. Uh, but yeah, here we go. Uh, the following narrative comprises a futuristic scenario that illustrates communication dilemmas concerning medical countermeasures, MCMs, that could plausibly emerge in the not-so-distant future. Its purpose is to prompt users, both individually and in discussion with others, to imagine the dynamic and oftentimes conflicted circumstance in which communication around emergency MCM development distribution uptake takes place. While engaged with the rigorous, uh, rigorous simulated health emergency, scenario readers have the... now. Scenario readers. I find this interesting because it seems like this document is probably something that is sent out to politicians, mainstream media spokespeople, public health officials. Um, to basically, and maybe even corporations, to give them an idea of basically like the script that they're running and how they can sort of tackle various um, communication dilemmas that uh, essentially pop up along the way, you know? How to, like, 
it's essentially like a propaganda blueprint and it's but it's also a way of like how to respond if you know an example would be like if an anti-vaxxer <laughs> or someone who's against the vaccine goes and like puts a giant billboard in Toronto that says uh, uh don't take the vaccine it's um you know it's only approved under for emergency use authorization or do you want to get Bell's palsy? Then don't take the vaccine. <laughs> uh, that's a bad example. But um, uh, scenario re- readers have the opportunity to mentally rehearse responses while also weighing the implications of their actions. At the same time, readers have a chance to consider what potential measures implemented in today's environment might ha- uh, avert comparable communication dilemmas or classes of dilemmas in the future. And I even have a note here. It seems as if like this would be a document for politicians or perhaps for the media to use for like rehearsal purposes. Uh, This scenario readers reference especially. Um, It goes on to say the perspective scenario was developed through a combination of combination of inductive and deductive approaches delineated by Ogilvy and Schwartz. Okay, now, if you know about Ogilvy and Schwartz, like, Ogilvy is a famous copywriter, okay? Inductive and deductive approaches delineated by Ogilvy and Schwartz. Like, they're referring to a person who is a professional copywriter. Ogilvy and Schwartz, I guess they were a team. Um, copywriter or, like, Copywriting is also like advertisement. Copywriting is sales letters in this for ads. Okay. They're referring to that in terms of how they came up with their like marketing plan for this supposed hypothetical scenario, which is the SPARS document. Okay. They're referring to a marketer advertiser famous from like way back in the day. He's like the quintessential guy that people, the copywriters look to, to learn. Okay. Um, now, isn't that interesting that they're looking to, to some advertisers and not to, you know, doctors and that kind of thing? Because as we know from COVID, this is a uh, pandemic that is built around perception and how you get the world to get on board with that same perception, like a bunch of drones, you got to hit them with some damn good propaganda. And as bullshit as it seems to those of us who are awake and know what's going on, I swear to God that, as you know, there's a lot of people who bought this hook, line, and sinker. So, like, their propaganda was uh, was pretty good. They really did... Fool the world on this one. Uh, even though, like, I just laugh at a lot of their shit. Holy fuck. Once you see the light, once you see the truth, it's like there's no going back. Uh, the time frame for the scenario is the years 2025 to 2028. Um, a scenario matrix um, was constructed illustrating four possible worlds shaped by these trends with consideration given to both constant and unpredictable driving forces. Uh, This is exactly how they organized... Oh, 
This is exactly how they organized the Rockefeller's uh, scenarios for the future of technology and international development um, with these four um, scenarios. And that's how they, uh, they wrote a lot of um, this sparse document. Ultimately, a world uh, comprised of isolated and highly fragmented communities um, with widespread access to information technology dubbed the echo chamber was selected as the future in which the perspective scenario would take place. Okay, so spark the sparse document. The whole thing is based off of this, uh, this one scenario in particular, the echo chamber. And, uh, what that specifically focuses on is like, there's a lot of people who have tuned out like government, government, media outlets in this and, and have chosen say like alternative media. They've, um, they've really chosen like pages and certain media outlets to follow that are specific to their belief system. And like, we definitely know that as in the truth community, like I only watch CBC or CP24 or CTV if I want to have a laugh or, see what bullshit they're pumping out because uh, for the most part, I don't need to watch that. I watch uh, alternative media, which actually uh, breaks down what's really happening in the world and, and tells you the truth of, of what's going on. Uh, these sources were used to identify communication challenges likely to emerge in future public health emergencies. Um, scenario environment. In the year 2025, the world has become simultaneously more connected, yet more divided. Uh, nearly universal, universal access to wireless internet and new technology, including internet accessing uh, technology, IAT. Thin, flexible screens that can be temporarily attached to briefcases, backpacks, or clothing and used to stream content from the internet has provided means for readily sharing news and information. So this is like uh, something that they they may have thought that we would actually have around uh, this time. However, we do have smartphones and that's an easy way of showing someone something, but they're talking about like screens and stuff that people could have on like briefcases and backpacks in this. Um, however, many have chosen to self-restrict the sources that they turn to for information, often electing to interact only with those with whom they agree, right? Sources that support our belief systems. This trend has increasingly isolated cliques from one another, making communications across and between these groups more and more difficult. Uh, from a government standpoint, the current administration is led by President Randall Archer. I feel like they're really talking about uh, Biden. I really believe that they're talking about Biden um, throughout this. Uh, then it goes on to say who took office in, uh, in January, 2025 Archer, uh, served as vice president under president Jacqueline Bennett, um, 2020 to 2024. Um, now I, th I think like there that don't pay attention to the genders, right. But like pay attention more to like Archer served as vice president under president Jacqueline Bennett like Biden served as vice president under president Barack Obama 
okay? And then don't pay attention to the years. I think that that's what they're actually like talking about there, what they may be referencing. However, from what I've read through this document, there there isn't too much that really makes it like increasingly important for it to be like Trump or Biden or, you know, Kamala Harris if, if Biden just happens to die of COVID all of a sudden, quote unquote. Um, yeah, but, uh, oh, wait, no, okay, now this is interesting. Uh, Archer served as vice president under President Jacqueline uh, Bennett, who did not seek a second term due to health concerns. I don't know. I don't want to make any uh, massive stipulations there that like, but this health concerns thing, like everyone knows that there could be that scenario where like Biden, you know, does get sick and then Kamala comes in. But like, I don't know. Um, The two remain close and Bennett acts as a close confidant and unofficial advisor to President Archer. Now there, like that does sound like Obama, Obama's relationship with Biden now. Uh, like sometimes I almost think that he's the guy in uh, Biden's ear when Biden's doing speeches. Uh, the majority of President Archer's senior staff, including Department of Health and Human uh, Services Secretary Dr. Sindra Nagel, are carryovers from Bennett's administration. Which is also probably true. There are a lot of people, who, I think, who carried over from uh, Obama's. At the same time of the initial Spars outbreak, Nigel has served in this position for just over three years. Okay. In regards to MCM communication, more specifically, uh, the and that MCM stands for Medical Countermeasures. Uh, uh, MCM communications, more specifically, the U.S. Department of Health and uh, Human Services, HHS, and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, and the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, and other public health in, uh, agencies have increasingly adopted a diverse range of social media te- technologies, including long-existing platforms such as Facebook, Snapchat, and Twitter, as well as emerging platforms like ZapQ. ZapQ is a uh, kind of hypothetical social media platform that they discuss in this. Uh, challenging their technological grip, however, the, the diversity of new information and media platforms and the speed with which the social media community evolves. More, um, moreover, while technology savvy and capable, these agencies still lag in terms of their multilingual skills, cultural competence and, and ability to present on all forms of social media. Additionally, these agencies face considerable budget constraints, which further complicate their efforts to expand their presence across the aforementioned platforms, increase social media literacy among their communication workforces, and improve public uptake of key messages. So as you can see, they're really talking about how, how do we pump this message out there, right? Which has been so important to them in regards to COVID, right? I saw a piece of information like very early on in 2020 in like early March. And this was before I 
went like deep, deep down the uh, conspiratorial rabbit hole. Um, it was something like that COVID had been shared on mainstream media outlets across the world. And this was only early March, but it had, all, it had been mentioned 1.1 billion times in early March 2020. Some people would be like, oh my God, wow, that looked, that means it's serious. And I was like, no, that means they're, tr well, I was like, that means they're trying to really drill this into people's head, which I found that to be uh, a little odd when it was something that was like so new and uh, they were just trying to fear monger so hard, even back then. Scenario organization in use. This scenario is designed to illustrate the public health risk communication challenges associated with distribution of emergency medical countermeasures during an infectious disease pandemic. Um, as such, users may find it most helpful to run the scenario as a tabletop exercise. Alternatively, if users prefer to examine self-select uh, communication dilemmas rather than proceed uh, chronologically through the entire scenario, they may refer to Appendix A and D. Tabletop exercises, though. Like, who is, who's performing these tabletop exercises? Is it mainstream media spokespeople? Public health officials? Probably. You know, your Teresa Tams, Eileen Devillas. Um, yeah. Uh, politicians. preface right there all right chapter one the spars outbreak begins uh so this starts with a uh what looks kind of like a, a mock uh newspaper clipping um from the saint paul chronicle um because that's where this uh hypothetical virus supposedly started from even at the top of this page, they have like something that looks exactly like the same like COVID branded like virus uh, logo that they that they use all the time for COVID. Um, anyway, so yeah, like the virus is said to uh, originate in this uh, uh, in in this place called uh, Saint Paul. St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, St. Paul Acute Respiratory Syndrome is what SPAR stands for. But anyway, uh, in mid-October 2025, three deaths were reported among members of the First Baptist Church of St. Paul, Minnesota. Two of the church members had recently returned from a missionary trip to the Philippines where they provided relief to victims of regional floods. Uh, the third was the mother of a church member who had also traveled to the Philippines with the church group, but who had also been mildly sick himself. Based on the patient's reported symptoms, healthcare providers initially guessed that they had died from seasonal influenza, which health officials predicted would be particularly virulent and widespread that fall. However, laboratory tests were negative for influenza. Unable to identify the causative agent, officials at the Minnesota Department of Health and Health's Public Health Laboratory sent the patient's clinical specimens to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC. 
where scientists confirmed that the patients did not have influenza. One CDC scientist recalled reading a recent ProMed dispatch describing the emergency of a novel coronavirus in Southeast Asia and ran a pan-coronavirus RT-PCR test. RT-PCR test. What tests are they using? Now, PCR test. Oh, wow, what a coincidence. A week later, the CDC team confirmed that the three patients were, in fact, infected with a novel coronavirus. Is this sounding familiar to you guys? Sure sounds familiar to me. Which was dubbed the St. Paul Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Okay. They also then have on the on side here, they have various examples of like what's going to be like CDC uh, tweets. And um, just to give you an example of how some of them read, uh, we have one. And this is supposed to be like tweets that they would use for like uh, stopping people from getting together during uh, Thanksgiving, I believe was the uh, hypothetical um scenario here so thanksgiving which also sounds familiar to uh they've always been uh, telling people not to gather with family and all this now uh so here's one um holiday travel plans actually no i believe no it would be over uh, christmas by the looks of it holiday travel plans uh stop spars by washing your hands and avoiding public places if you feel sick here's another one if you feel ill Seek medical attention. Use the vampire cough and avoid others to prevent the spread of, of uh, spars. Uh, stop spars Saturday. Uh, vampire cough was also in, in like hashtags there. And they're probably talking about like, I don't know, coughing into your, uh, your elbow, your inner elbow or whatever. Here's another one. Uh, practice good hygiene during your Thanksgiving travels. Okay, so it was Thanksgiving. Uh, bring home leftovers, not spars. Bring home leftovers, not spars. Uh, happy Thanksgiving. Be safe on, Bla on Black Friday. If you uh, brave the crowds, wash your hands often. If you feel sick, shop on Cyber Monday instead. They also claim here that like spars uh, was spread more during like a Black Friday, uh, Black Friday with all the people gathering in, uh, in stores and then it became like a big outbreak. Uh, yeah, there's an interesting part here. It says concern among uh, many Americans about the severity of spars at this point in the outbreak was moderately high. The public's concern was compounded by the apparent virulence of the pathogen. That's what they said about COVID too, right? That it was so contagious that it wasn't, like if you really like looked at all the data and all like the charts and all this, they they were kind of saying, ah, no, it's about as deadly as the flu, maybe a little worse or whatever. But it's like, oh, but this it's it's contagious, and that's why that's why we have to be so careful of this. It's so contagious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what happens when you uh, have the the PCR test set at uh, forty five cycle thresholds. Everything's very contagious because you can find anything. Uh at the outset of the SPARS outbreak, physicians' understanding of the disease stemmed primarily from extremely severe cases resulting in pneumonia or hypoxia that required hospitalization and extensive medical treatment. Mild cases as of the disease, which produced symptoms including cough, fever, headaches, and malaise, were often perceived as the flu by the people who had them and consequently often went untreated and undiagnosed by medical personnel. As a result, early case fatality estimates were inflated. Okay. Early case fatality estimates were inflated 
By late November, the CDC reported on an, uh, an initial estimate uh, sparse case fatality rate of 4.7%. By contrast, WHO reported that the overall case fatality rate for SARS was 14 to 15%. And over... <laughs> that's ridiculously high. <laughs> and, uh, and over 50% for, 50 for people over the age of 64. Later in the SPARS outbreak, data that included more accurate estimates of mild SPARS cases indicated a case fatality rate of only 0.6%. Wow. Now that, now that really reminds me of COVID. But COVID doesn't exist. Let's be honest. Or <laughs> it's the flu. Um, anyway, that's, that's kind of the important parts of chapter one right there. At the end of every one of these chapters, there's a food for thought section. Now, let me give you an idea of what this food for thought section covered. It gives you an idea of what the future uh, the other one, the ones in further chapters will look like. Um, and again, this is where it's designed to be a tabletop exercise because now they're asking it's like, okay, class, now how can health authorities best do this? Da, 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 da. And then they pick the brains of these academic types and then they develop what their plan's going to be for when they actually orchestrate it. You see? So how can health authorities best meet public demands for critical information such as what is the health threat and what do I know about it when the crisis is still unfolding and not all the facts are known? Right. Yeah. So how can public health officials uh, sort of like answer those questions of what is the health threat and what what do I know about it or uh, what um, and then how can they address that? So then second question, what benefits does monitoring the trends in social media postings confer on efforts to meet people's information needs during an evolving health crisis? Well, lets you know what the public's thinking lets you know, are they buying this scam? <laughs> and of course, it allows you to, uh, to address any issues that they may have and all this so that you can keep that narrative going. <laughs> of course, they would have some different uh, answers to that, you know? What medical and morale-boosting purposes does sharing information about self-protective actions, example, infection control measures, serve for the public during an uncertain and, and fear-instilling situation? Anyway, that gives you an idea. And actually, that last one's a big one, too, because they've uh, focused so much on, you know, like, the masks and all this. And when they're saying, like, infection control measures, right? And uh, what medical and morale-boosting purpose does sharing information about self-protective actions, like masks, for example, serve for the public during an uncertain and fear-instilling situation? Uh, yeah, I mean, number one, it makes them feel like they're, uh, they're doing the right thing, that they're being a hero, that they're saving lives. Uh, yeah, so... Sure worked with COVID. Got these people thinking they're like, they're actual heroes out here. Okay, chapter two. Chapter two is called A Possible Cure. 
there's a few interesting points in this one. A couple things that completely relate to what's going on right now. Um, uh, so th there's one part here where it says, the first challenges in identifying mild cases uh, limited the impact of isolation programs. Uh, because the initial symptoms of SPARS closely resembled influenza, many who contracted SPARS did not immediately seek care, assumingly, assuming they merely had the flu. Uh, that kind of sounds as if they're like that, you know, the same idea of like asymptomatic spread. Like they didn't know that they, uh, that they even had something or the symptoms were very mild. They assumed they just had the flu. You know, it seems there's a lot of like seeding in here, even for like, there's certain stuff within this document. I can tell like they're kind of just like blowing smoke up the ass of like whatever academic types or like mainstream media, spokespeople, politicians, um, whatever, corporate people, all this, like big pharma people. It's like, you can tell they're just kind of blowing smoke up out of those people's asses too, because they try and make this like a believable sort of like hypothetical like story in this. And, um, and, and yeah, like they really kind of play up the, the story, even though it's like completely relative to what's going on now. Um, together, these factors led to significant spikes in the number of reported cases. Notice, so the whole COVID-19 has been entirely based around cases. It's always, it's all been the cases, the cases. Oh, we're up to 2,000 cases a day, 4,000 cases a day, you know? Uh, it's like you're, you're watching the freaking stock market or something like this. Oh, Apple stock just went up to $150 yesterday. Da -da -da -da. Oh my God, 175 Like, you know, it's, but... It, but it's that, but applied to like fear mongering, um, cases, you know, who the fuck gives a, a fuck about a case? Can you imagine if we reported uh, flu cases every year? Holy shit. Can you imagine what those numbers would be? 5,000 people reported the flu today. Wow. Oh God. I'm shaking in my boots. This whole paragraph is pretty interesting. Uh, by mid December, Sparse cases were reported in 26 states and the Ministry of Health in Mexico, Canada, Brazil, Japan, and several European countries had notified that the WHO of dozens of imported cases. There was widespread concern in public health circles that travel over, uh, that travel over the Christmas and New Year's holidays would spark a global pandemic. Um, I just want to note here, like, Notice they're focusing on travel, right? Because we, what we really know, um, those of us who are awake, is we know this is all about clamping down on people's like rights and freedoms, like limit their travel, limit who they can go see. Then when you like, you know, keep your distance, wear a mask, which is a de demoralization tactic and makes you feel like a slave cuck. Unless you're already a slave cuck and then you won't feel any difference. But for those people who are freedom-oriented, freedom-minded, to put on a mask, it just doesn't fly with us. Uh, but yeah, it's all about limitation, right? So even with this, they're trying to seed in like the, 
oh, if, if there's travel and this and that, that could cause a, a spark, a global pandemic. WHO, which had declared the sparse epidemic to be a PHEIC uh, on November 25th, that stands for pandemic, da 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 da, of something, uh, on November 25th, was actively engaged in preventing further spread of the disease internationally. However, the WHO's efforts promoted interventions originally designed for influenza and other similar respiratory pathogens, such as hygiene, social distancing. Um, this is important. Originally designed for influenza and other similatory respiratory pathogens, such as hygiene. Okay, yeah, check. You know, the doctors always like always told you. You know, well, not not really even right, but like we've all we all know like wash your hands and all this when you're sick. Uh, but social distancing. Now this is where this is like how they changed the definition of herd immunity to being like, you know, about like natural immunity within a community to changing it to like you reach herd immunity when like a percentage, a large percentage of the population has, has taken the vaccine and then that's how you reach immunity. So they changed the definition. But here they're just trying to stick in like social distancing as if it's like something where, where that's what, what uh, the WHO and like doctors and public health officials have always recommended social distancing yeah like you would stay at home if you're sick but social distancing is something else social distancing is also like stay six feet apart right in terms of like the new covid social distancing and we never called it social distancing when you were just staying at home you know you call that like stay home, get some rest, this and that, but not this term social distancing. And they're using it as if it's a term that we just all knew. No, 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 no. You came up with it for this because again, it's about clamping down on our freedoms and rights. And what's when the way of doing that, keeping people apart, this whole thing would not have worked if people were gathering as usual. You know how quickly people just would have went to the bar and got talking and been like, you know, some of the sheep would be like, yeah, I don't know. I think this is like a really scary, like, oh, we got to be careful and all this, but this is a real, I hear it's a pandemic. And then, you know, Jim, the, the town, like awake conspiracy theorist guy would be like, nah, this is uh this isn't a pandemic guys. They're, it's all fear mongering. Da, 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 da. They're orchestrating this. They want, uh, you know, they're trying to take away your rights. They're trying to close small businesses and eliminate eliminate their uh, competition and uh, have it so only the big box stores can operate fully and all this. Come on, guys. Use your brains, right? And that would have happened in the bar, but that wouldn't happen in just one bar. That would have happened in every, every bar across the country, Canada, America, across the world. And all of this gathering of the people, information spreads really fast. And on social media, it's harder to communicate with, with strangers. But like, we're a lot more, we as people can actually, we can communicate a lot better in person, even with strangers. Like it's more powerful when a stranger, like someone overhears a conversation 
And it's like, hey, wait, are you talking about, you're talking about COVID? Yeah, 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 we are. Hey, wait, didn't you, did you say something there? Like you think it's uh, over, overblown, over exaggerated and all this? Yeah, I did. Da, 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 da. I'm telling you, there's something fishy about this not adding up. Really, eh? Someone's more open to that when they see someone in person. Over social media, it's just so easy to be like, for defense mechanisms to go up and people to be like, you're a conspiracy theorist, blah, 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 and go, and go right into that. Face-to-face, people aren't so bold, first of all. They're cowards, and they seem to be more impressionable face-to-face. It's why cold calling over the phone is sometimes not as effective as like door knocking or something like that, like on businesses or whatever it might be. Um, isolation of suspected cases, all of which were less effective against spars. Oh, social distancing and isolation of suspected cases, all of it, all of which were less effective against spars. Okay. Um, it also talks about, then it says here, like that there was like, um, with the spars, it's, there's public pressure to identify treatments for the disease. I just want to say, we never really had that. Like, you didn't see a lot of people in the beginning saying like, oh my God, we need to find a cure for, for COVID and all this. Like, not in the general public. The mainstream media was pushing that. The politicians were pushing things like that. And they were immediately also talking about how until we develop a vaccine, vaccine, da da da, like planting that seed, vaccine, right? As opposed to just, you know, let's just say, hypothetically speaking, COVID is real. What would you really need for that? You know what I mean? Just like a mild antibiotic would probably do the trick. If we're being completely honest, like a like a hydroxychloroquine or an ivermectin or whatever. A hydroxychloroquine plus zinc was one combination. You know, maybe, maybe COVID, maybe it is, maybe it is real, but maybe it's also people's response to various toxicity uh, in our environments and all this, like terrain theory versus ger- uh, germ theory. You want to look into terrain theory. Uh, if you haven't yet. Um, but honestly, I, I'm more of the belief that it's just the flu. There's also doctors who looked into that and they like looked at 1500 PCR samples and found them all to be like influenza A and B. But anyway, um, it goes on to talk about this uh, potential like therapeutic that they're talking about here. Um, at the time, no treatment or vaccine for spars was approved for use in humans. The anti antiviral calcavir, which was initially developed as a therapeutic for uh, SARS severe acute respiratory syndrome, and MERS Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, was one of the several antiviral drug authorized in the United States by the FDA to treat a handful of of severe SARS cases under its expanded uh, access protocol. Uh, so calcavir. Um, 
FDA was prompted to be more forthcoming with information on potential treatment options. Again, they're trying to play it here. And this is why I say they, they're, they really almost make an effort to blow smoke up the uh, whoever is like doing these tabletop exercises to make it believable for them too. Um, but here they're saying like that the FDA, like the public was demanding that the FDA uh, be more forthcoming with information on potential treatment options. I never saw like a big uprising from the general public, like even the sheep until the mainstream media started planting that in their head. And then the focus was always on the jab, not on other types of like less dangerous, less risky, uh, just regular medications as opposed to vaccines. Right. Uh, it's just, it's it's crazy. And, and they would shut people, any doctor who came forth and said, I've been using hydroxychloroquine and zinc. Or there was another one who was saying, I've been using uh, intravenous vitamin C was, uh, was another one. Or I've been using ivermectin. But there was one who was saying like, uh, she was a uh, black doctor from the, uh, the States, female, um, who was saying uh, that she was using hydroxychloroquine and zinc and that it was working on her patients and uh, they were, even if they had multiple uh, comor comorbidities or illnesses or whatever, that, uh, that they were healing, like they were getting better quickly. Um, and that's even people with like multiple illnesses, diabetes, this, that, whatever. Uh, the food for thought section here. What risk do public health agencies face if the public media and or and or political leaders feel that information about potential treatment options is being withheld? Ooh, that's an interesting one. Well, the public loses trust in the establishment. That's my answer. All right, chapter three is called a potential vaccine. So this one starts off and it's supposed to be like a memo from uh, Greta Smithson, vice president for animal health, okay? From a company called GMI, a fictional company called GMI, uh, to a doctor, Dr. Marcus Thompson, uh, director and vaccination, vaccination research branch. Um, uh, regarding, um, hooved mammal respiratory virus vaccine, number 14, HMRV VAC 14, uh, use in human populations. Okay. Um, so the summary of this is in 2021, a coronavirus caused an outbreak in region seven, Southeast Asia, hooved mammal populations. Um, our researchers developed and produced in-house uh, an effective vaccine against the infection, HMRV VAC-14. Its subsequent approval and use successfully ended the outbreak in the region. While largely effective in preventing infection, severe side effects, including swollen legs, severe joint pain, and encephalitis, um, potentially resulting in seizures, se uh, seizure disorders, or death. Um, so again, this was like a vaccine that they developed for uh, hooved animals, um, probably like livestock and that kind of thing. 
Uh, then it goes on to say, uh, it is unknown at this time how similar the two coronaviruses. They're now comparing this um, HM, HMRV um, ho hooved mammal uh, respiratory coronavirus with SPARS, right, in this scenario. Uh, I, it is unknown at this time how similar the two coronaviruses are or whether HMRV VAC14 or a similar vaccine would be effective in human populations due to its development for internal, internal use only. HMRV VAC14 has not been tested or authorized by any governing agency or for use, um, for use in animals or humans. So... I don't exactly know where they were going with this chapter, just exploring different ideas. I guess this, maybe this was a narrative that they were planning on running with more um, in terms of some like, you know, or, or maybe anyway, um, one thing for sure, they, they love this whole like animal to human sort of narrative. They love it on, on two different like kind of planes of thought. One with COVID-19, they said it, it came from a bat, right? That was the initial, uh, initial story. Someone ate bat soup in a uh, Wuhan wet market. And then that's how, uh, that's how they got the first case of, of COVID-19. That's the narrative, right? Or that was the narrative. Uh, so, but then there's also, I can give you another real world example. They had mad cow disease, right? I'll give you another real, real world example. Uh, the Spanish flu, apparently, when people really started dropping dead from it, is actually when they pushed out the vaccine for it. Uh, that was obviously supposed to cure it. Oh yeah, quote unquote. Um, but apparently, what they were actually pumping into people was like, it was like a horse meningitis vaccine, which. Uh, people did not respond well to. So, I don't know. Um, maybe there will be an element uh, of this chapter that we'll see in in later years. You know, there's uh, a lot more jabs to come. And uh, these, these first ones that they're trying to roll out, like, I've now kind of come to the uh, conclusion that some of them must be uh, saline um, because some people or like some sort of placebo because some people don't seem to be having any reaction at all and then you have others who uh, have a stroke or develop Bell's palsy afterwards or have a heart attack or whatever it might be of course it's also just people's natural immune system and all this but uh, anyway there's a bit of an animal theme going on in this chapter um, these people are really sick. Also, the people who, you know, uh, develop these types of things, you know, the, the Rockefellers and all this, who, who organize these think tanks and documents and all this. So uh, it also could be kind of like a bit of an inside joke with them. You know, they, they refer to the, the human population as the herd. Um, and of course, then you have like actual livestock and all this, the herd. And, uh, but yeah, they definitely love this... Uh, you know, bird flu, mad cow disease. Sp during the Spanish flu, they actually pumped people with a horse meningitis vaccine. With COVID-19, they said it came from 
a wet market came from bat soup. Like, anyway. <laughs> um, and honestly, when you, when you really look at a lot of these uh, narratives, even like a lot of the ones that we see in the mainstream media, at this point, it's literally, it's, it's written like a movie. It's, it's like the world's craziest movie is unfolding in front of our eyes. On some days, it really feels like that. Uh, it's just a fucking clown world these days. Um, shortly after authorizing expanded access to Calicavir uh, Cal- uh, um, for uh, select patients, the FDA received uh, reports of an animal vaccine developed by GMI, a multinational livestock conglomerate operating cattle and pig farms in and among other places, South, uh, South Asia. Since 2021, ranchers had been using the vaccine to prevent a SPARS-like respiratory coronavirus disease in cows and pigs in the Philippines. Um, Data provided by GMI suggested that the vaccine was effective at preventing SPARS-like illnesses in cows, pigs, and other hooved mammals. Um, Then goes on to say later on, uh, lacking a viable alternative and considering the potentially high morbidity and mortality associated with uh, SPARS, at the time, the case fatality rate was still considered to be 4.7%. The United States government contacted GMI in regards to the vaccine. After laboratory tests confirmed that the coronavirus affecting livestock in Southeast Asia was closely related to spars Cove. Isn't it funny how in this it's spars Cove and in real life it's supposedly SARS-CoV-2. Um, <clears throat> the U.S. began an extensive review of GMI's animal vaccine development and testing processes. Shortly thereafter, federal health authorities awarded a contract to SynBio. There's also a company now called Bio and Tech. SynBio, a US-based pharmaceutical company to develop a SPARS vaccine based on the GMI model. The contract included, actually I'll skip that. It also provided considerable funding from the National Institute of Health and included provisions for a priority review by the FDA. Additionally, HHS Secretary Nagel agreed in principle to invoke the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, the PREP Act, thereby providing liability protection for SynBio and future vaccine providers. Liability. Uh, Like zero liability, like what they have now for the vaccine manufacturers, okay? You get injured, you die, the vaccine manufacturer themselves are not held uh, accountable for that. They are not liable. It Now it becomes some like government-funded thing, which we'll also get into later on because they talk about that here in this sparse document. Um, liability protection for SynBio and future vaccine providers in the event that vaccine recipients experienced any adverse effects. Why do you think they are exploring ideas like this? They need to develop a plan for how to handle people who have adverse reactions and deaths from the jab. There's something I also noted while reading this. I realized something, it's pretty, it's pretty much common sense to, to those of us who see what is actually going on in the world right now. But like, 
if you can create the perception or if they, quote unquote, can create the perception of a deadly virus, then all of a sudden a vaccine that produces like adverse reactions and even deaths in a certain um, percentage or percentile of the population, you can start to tell that with these people who really bought into the fact that it's a, that it was a deadly virus and stuff, they almost consider these adverse reactions and deaths to be like an acceptable thing. Like, like it was an, a necessary thing in order to defeat the virus. Like, um, if you believe, if they believe, like the, the public, general public, if they believe that more people would have died from the virus, then any adverse reactions and deaths that come from the vaccine just seem like something where it's like, ah, oh, well, oh, that's unfortunate, but, you know, if we didn't have the vaccine, more people would have died of COVID. It's, it's really stupid, but you can see how they set this narrative, narrative up, right? And if you, if you were to ask the general population, if you were to do like a man on, on the street sort of thing and just ask people like, how high do you think the percentage of, uh, what's the, what do you think the fatality rate is for uh, COVID-19? I swear to God, you'd probably get some, a lot of people who'd be like, um, 5%, um, 10%, is it 10%? Right? <laughs> Meanwhile, it's like what uh, zero point zero two, right? That but then you uh, and we're only seeing the beginning of of the of of these adverse reactions and and deaths from from the jab. You know what I mean? I think it's going to be more of like a a time delayed type thing. And I mean, quite honestly, I think it also is going to have something to do with five G. Uh that will be something for another podcast, but I've heard recently that uh, the vaccines contain something called uh, graphene oxide, which has a magnetic or like met metallic quality, which will be essentially make them more of like almost uh, an electromagnetic hub or like magnet for EMF waves from the 5G. Anyway, on to the next chapter. Okay, chapter four. Users beware is what it's called. Um, I also just want to review one thing I didn't even say about chapter three. There's a food for thought section. Of course, every chapter has one at the end. And this one says, how might federal authorities avoid people possibly seeing an expedited SPARS vaccine development and testing process as somehow rushed and inherently flawed even though that process still meets the same safety and efficacy standards as any other vaccine. Wow. You know, uh, like they already know that with COVID, for example, because they, they probably even knew that what they were going to do is have it pass through the FDA under emergency use authorization. And this question basically asked like, how do we how do we handle people or uh, how do we handle people's perspective of uh, of a vaccine being rushed and uh, inherently flawed because of that uh, 
even though that process still meets the same safety and efficacy standards as any other vaccine. Sure, well, first of all, sure it does. I mean, sure it does. Sure. But anyway, like you can just see anyone, anyone with a brain can put this together and be like, holy shit, this is like, this is literally what's happening now, right? Anyway. Um, yeah, I just wanted to cover that last question from chapter three there. Now we'll get into this user's beware chapter, chapter four. Uh, it starts off just with some, what's supposed to be some sort of like mock-up, like newspaper clippings in this. Uh, and, uh, this all has to do with this like drug Calcavir, which I almost see it. You can think of this as almost like the equivalent of like what hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin uh, was with COVID, although they're kind of spinning a, a different narrative here um, because with hydroxychloroquine and, and ivermectin, uh, the biggest thing was they just completely suppressed any talk about those, um, about those drugs, which they're, they were like, honestly, they were proven to be, to work in, in regards to like COVID or just basically like the flu. Um, uh, I should be more, a little more specific about that. Like, I don't really think that like COVID exists per se. Um, I do, I think that we were expo exposed to more toxicity in the year 2020. Absolutely. All the 5g towers went up and did that maybe, um, manifest itself or, um, show like show up as more like flu and maybe even like a, uh, a stronger version of the flu because of that added uh, toxicity. Uh, also, all the chemtrails and all these different things, all the, you know, all the shit and poison that they're putting in food and all this. Well, that's kind of old news, but like, yeah, like I, I oh, not to mention like the swab thing that they're sticking up people's, uh, nasal cavity and then like that apparently had ethylene oxide so i mean there are there are a lot of things going on here it's it's very complex um but they they totally suppressed any doctor that was using hydroxychloroquine and hydroxychloroquine and zinc in particular was one of the combinations that was working really well with patients that were coming in with various uh, types of sickness um you know that they were calling that people that were being diagnosed as COVID with the PCR test, which was of course set at a cycle threshold that was ridiculous, as sometimes as high as forty-five, and they say uh, over thirty-five, it's it's not even a valid test anymore. Uh, not to mention it was developed as a research tool, not a diagnostics tool. And I think it was Carrie Mullis who said, "Well, yeah, Carrie Carrie Mullis was the inventor of the PCR. He said you can pretty much find anything, and honestly, they." If you're going to be using the PCR, you should be running it at like something like 25 or something like this. But anyway, anyone, any doctor that was using methods like hydroxychloroquine and zinc or uh, intravenous vitamin C or ivermectin was completely suppressed. And you'll see, I'll relate back to what I'm going to say right now in this chapter, but like they, so they wouldn't even let them, um, talk about it 
but they were also so focused on like what the potential uh, negative side effects of of hydroxychloroquine could be. It was like, oh my god, we couldn't possibly use that. Like it's it's untested and it could be could be dangerous and we don't know if it's effective and all this. But it's like, are are you kidding me? This is like a low risk pharmaceutical. But you're like more than happy to pump out a uh, a vaccine and skip animal testing trials. Well, they did animal testing or animal trials, but that was before they ever like went to market with it. And, and this like they did testing on vaccines like this. And when they tested it on ferrets, all the ferrets died. Some of you may know that <laughs> that little uh, story. Um, but yeah, hydroxychloroquine, oh my God, we couldn't possibly, we couldn't possibly, uh, use that. Like, and these doctors who were talking about using it, they're crazy. They're crazy conspiracy theorists. Oh my God. How could you ever, how could you ever think about using hydroxychloroquine? Uh, and like this, this doctor's crazy to, to say that it's actually working on her, uh, her patients. Oh my God. Like lock her up. <laughs> anyway. They take a different kind of spin with uh, what's going on in this uh, SPARS document. Maybe they had slightly different plans. Maybe they were going to be releasing a pharmaceutical as well that they could sell. But hydroxychloroquine is just super cheap and uh, super cheap and, and effective, um, which doesn't really work out too well for big pharma, right? Because they can't really make money selling hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> um Okay, so these are the newspaper clippings right at the top. FDA promotes miracle cure for SPARS. Uh, another one, officials recommend use of unsafe SPARS drug for children. These are like examples of how they go on to later say that the mainstream media was delivering different messages on Calcavir so that it was like it was giving the public like mixed messages and all this. Anyway. So here's the mixed messages. FDA promotes miracle cure for SPARS. Officials recommend use of unsafe SPARS drug for children. CDC officials, um, SPARS drug may be ineffective. Use it anyway. So some weird examples of uh, MSN, like uh, MSM uh, newspaper headlines. Uh, okay. Following limited evidence of success in treating SPARS patients with calcavir, the FDA issued an emergency use authorization uh, for this drug as SPARS therapeutic in the United States. Um, I, because it apparently uh, caused intense stomach cramping and uh, in a statistically significant number of adult cases. Um, uh, yeah, so I say here, like, are, are, they, are, are they perhaps like rehearsing uh, negative MSM reactions to uh, regular pharma medication to practice for hydroxychloroquine. I like. I wondered if if maybe that was kind of like where they were going with this, like um, exercises in terms of how they could paint uh, hydroxychloroquine as negative. That's that's could that could have been what this was uh, was about. Because here you see they're talking about like intense stomach cramping as if that's a big deal, like. We're having people like drop dead of a stroke after this COVID vaccine. 
or people developing Bell's palsy or uh, passing out just a myriad of different things. Yet, uh, oh yeah, uh, Calcavir, oh my God, intense stomach cramps. Oh, we can't have that. Jeez, oh, someone got diarrhea. Oh my God, take this off the market. <laughs> and it's, yeah, so it's funny how they were supposedly so scared of side effects to uh, like relatively safe therapeutic drugs, but when it comes to the uh, the vaccine, they don't even want to talk about side effects. Honest, have you seen the mainstream media? Like if you were to turn on CNN or CBC or CTV, aside from like literally having to uh, announce that AstraZeneca caused blood clots, right? Because like they, and they still continue to, pu- to push it out there. Like this, <laughs> only in Canada, man, only in Canada. And only in Canada, it's bad enough that like the Canadian government is what it is and they're so and they're corrupt and all this even though Justin Trudeau's like whispering and oh can I speak with just the children please ah um it's bad enough that the Canadian government is is as corrupt and communist as, as they are and all this but you know what's really disgusting though what's really disgusting is the people in this country who after being told that AstraZeneca causes blood clots it's like well, I already have my appointment booked and Trudeau says that the first vaccine I can get is the best one. So I'm going to do it for the greater good and go and get my jab. Anyway, um, yeah, but that's the truly disgraceful part of Canada. Uh, the government's bad enough. The people within this country are truly pathetic. I did not think that Canadian citizens were this bad before 2020. Not quite this bad. Um, anyway. <laughs> uh, we continue on. Uh, it says that Calcavir uh, was a pro- uh, supposedly released to treat spars um, in early January 2026 in this hypothetical scenario. Uh, then it goes on to talk about kind of like this, like the media mixed messages And then finally, there is something kind of like important and interesting here. It says, um, yet others wondered why the drug was not being administered uh, preventatively to the entire U.S. population. Now, let's say that COVID really was a thing, okay? And I don't dismiss it as a possibility, but... Hydroxychloroquine is proven to be fairly safe. It's been used in a lot of different countries before for other things. And apparently a lot of countries that had like um, malaria, they were, they had, they've used um, hydroxychloroquine for a long time now, years. And in those countries, nobody was getting COVID. So I don't know if like hydroxychloroquine also just works for the flu and that's why people weren't getting like covid or maybe they weren't running the pcr test at 45 cycle thresholds or maybe they just weren't doing much pcr testing or whatever but countries that already were using hydroxychloroquine for things like malaria uh they weren't getting covid cases like they were getting almost like zero covid cases i don't know coincidence probably not um but it says here, yet others wondered why the drug was not being administered preventatively 
for uh, to the entire U.S. population. So, like, if a hydroxychloroquine had been passed around, uh, since it's such a cheap drug anyway, if that had been given around for people who wanted it, and it's a you know relatively safe drug to take anyway, it's not some experimental vaccine. Uh, if people wanted it, then it could be something that they could have taken as a preventative if they were really that scared, right? As a choice thing. See, this is something that like they would have done if it was like, if it was a real pandemic and if they were really trying to help people, you know, a good, like good, solid, cheap pharmaceutical for something that's no more deadly than the flu or basically is the flu, you know, but it's, it's not that it's not a real pandemic. And the whole thing is orchestrated to kill people and uh, to great gain more control and to make uh, a fuck ton of profit and all these things. Uh, because little actual data on the safety and efficacy of Calcavir existed at the time, government agencies had a difficult time responding to the ever-diverging public responses and social media. Okay. Um, what else? Uh, in the United States... Oh, yeah, I found this interesting, too. Uh, yeah, they try and... They're painting an interesting little scenario here. By late January 2026, the WHO reported sustained transmission of spars in 42 countries across the globe. The disease proved to be particularly devastating in low-income countries where weak health symptoms, malnourishment, and co-infections greatly exasperated the impacts of spars. In the United States, the situation was much less dire, but public concern about spars remained high. Now, in terms of what actually happened with COVID, I would say that's completely backwards. Um, I would say that COVID was almost non-existent in a lot of um, poorer countries. Now, if you ask some normie off the streets of Toronto uh, if about that, they would tell you, oh yeah, for sure. The poor countries, they struggled with COVID the most, da, 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 like India and all this, because they bought like mainstream media propaganda. However, the truth of the matter is um, I've seen, I've seen, okay, so for example, I've seen a, uh, I have this food blog account, right? And I followed this one uh, Indian food blogger and she was... Uh, she seemed to be going around India in like in one of our most intense lockdowns in Canada. I was seeing videos of her going around in India, barely anyone wearing a mask. It seemed like it was something that was just like choice. Now, the masks don't do shit to begin with, but like nobody was wearing them. And it seemed like life was completely back to normal. However, you turn on mainstream media. Remember those clips they were showing of people like passing out in the street and people lining up for oxygen. And it's like, if you were to actually listen to mainstream media and, and watch mainstream media and believe it, you would be led totally astray. Like, but from my, from what I've actually seen, poorer countries did not have many COVID cases. Um, now, my theory on that is this was more of an attack on basically the five I countries, um, Canada, the U.S., the United Kingdom, Australia, 
New Zealand. They're called the Five Eyes because they're like the, the biggest surveillance states. Of course, China is also a crazy surveillance state. But these are all these are the Commonwealth uh, countries that are like um, big surveillance states. And I need to read up, up more on this whole Five Eyes theory, but it's apparently a thing. Um, Commonwealth countries that, that fit under this kind of nanny state surveillance state thing. It's very much an attack on that because the whole idea of COVID, and it's funny that the slogan was flatten the curve because the only thing they're flattening is the, uh, the economy, um, just decimating businesses. So in a way, you know, they're steamrolling it and they're, they're flattening it that way. I almost think that flatten the curve is an inside joke, perhaps with the central bankers. Um, but yeah, um, oh yeah, there's even something I read and it has to do with Agenda 2030. They want all of like the first world countries, what's considered first world countries now to be leveled to the third world. Um, how would they possibly do that? You know, how would they possibly do that? Well, it would make a lot of sense to, uh, you know, create this pandemic or fake pandemic and uh, lock down the countries uh, that you want to bring down from first world to third world. Because if you lock a country down for like years, and let's not, uh, let's not joke around or beat around the bush here, it's been, it's been years. It's been years of lockdowns. Yeah, for sure. People can still go outside and all this, but... You know, it's more of a, uh, it's a shutdown of, of businesses more than anything. Like, look at these restaurants, for example. Only now do they finally have their patios open again. It's been, you know, it's been back and forth and all this. And sometimes it's also even more detrimental too because they go and they build these ridiculous, like stupid patios with like fucking plexiglass and all this. And now they're like almost out onto the streets and all this. And they spend all this money to get all this new equipment and, and all this. And, uh, then just to be locked down again, you know what I mean? So are they really ever getting ahead? You know what I mean? It's just kind of a slow, painful death of these businesses. And for example, I've seen a lot of restaurants that have completely uh, gone out of business it's not all at once. It's a it's a slow trickle, but slowly, slowly but surely, they're all throwing in the towel. They're all throwing in the towel at different times. I saw a restaurant even like a couple of weeks ago that was throwing in the towel now. It's like, hey, like, I mean, your your patios can be open now. Oh, you can even have indoor dining now. But it's like, nah, you know, and they, they wrote a post and they're like, to be honest, uh, COVID hasn't been very uh, uh, friendly or good to us and all this. And I think this restaurant actually was um, pretty kind of awake to, uh, to, to what's really going on. Or, I mean, at least on the level where they're, they're anti-lockdown. Like, they, they aren't, like, pro-lockdown. Like, yeah, let's have another one. Whatever it takes, you know. Um, anyway... Yeah, here they're saying in the United States, the situation was much less dire. Well, the United States, in terms of mainstream media per, uh, perception, was the place where they tried to say 600,000 people died of COVID. 
But then they also later admitted that only 6% of those deaths were really just COVID alone. And the rest of them were like comorbidities and all this that they just kind of like a call to COVID death because the person died with COVID, not from COVID. Anyway, uh, but it's all perception, right? Uh, okay, goes on to say, citizens to actively seek out medical attention for even, oh yeah, so um, this anxiety in the States resulted in extensive use of Calcavir across the country and led many citizens to actively seek out to actively seek out medical attention for even minor spars like symptoms. So what they're not talking about here is that, you know, that could be because, uh, because of like fear mongering from the mainstream media, which um, for sure here in Canada and for sure in the States, one of the biggest ways that they kept people uh, running out to get the PCR test and all this was to keep them in that fear state. So if they just get like, minor symptoms like it's saying here you get a little cough which you normally would have thought was the flu cold or flu uh now you're running out for a pcr test which leads to more cases um which because of the cycle the high cycle threshold on the pcr um then it goes on to say while this information was a relief um to the public public health officials it did little to quell uh public concern and there they were just talking about um, uh, a lower uh, fatality rate of 1.1% as opposed to 4.7. Yeah, little to, uh, to diminish or quell public fear. You notice that here in Canada too. Um, even, when, even when these sheep are then told like good news, like it's not actually that dangerous. Even the CDC says they're still stuck in like March 2020 fear mode. Uh, and there's even like some sort of like communist takeover principle like that, that if you scare the public for like something like 60 days straight, then they don't even hear information properly after that. They're just so much in a fear state that they don't even like process further information. Even if it said like, guys, like COVID's not even that big a deal, right? And you almost see the mainstream media testing this sometimes where they will give mixed messages. They give a lot of mixed messages. It's like a demoralization tactic too. Like, and they'll, they'll put out, they, they put out stupid stuff too. Like the Toronto, Metro Toronto Zoo putting out a poster where it, was, where it was like a kid wearing a mask and then like an otter on the other side. And it's like, slogan, wear a mask because I can't. I'm sorry, what the fuck? What are you trying to, what are you trying to say? A fucking otter can get COVID? And people believe this shit? Who, who's, who's this working on? My God. <laughs> it's working on somebody, though. <laughs> um, in addition, not all members of the public responded to, to SPARS the same way. Uh, small groups of individu individuals spread throughout the country, for example, who felt the natural, that natural cures such as garlic and vitamins would be more effective at treating spars than an untested drug, were much less likely to accept calcavir as a treatment option or even seek medical attention for spars-like symptoms. <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like me and a lot of people I know. 
Uh, but more specifically in regards to the vaccine and not so much in regards to like a hydroxychloroquine or something like that. Um, to be honest, if I thought that COVID was like more of a risk back in early 2020, I would have taken hydroxychloroquine uh, based on what I heard about it. it. Seemed like it was a very mild uh, pharmaceutical drug. If I really thought that COVID was any concern, you know, as a preventative measure or whatever. Instead, I just took a bunch of, uh, I took vitamin C, vitamin uh, D, and zinc, uh, just in case this thing actually was real. Um, some of this resistance, particularly among select ethnic minority groups, uh, was attributable to questionable messaging on the part of public health agencies. Uh, then it goes on to say, one of the best examples of this occurred among the Navajo tribe in the south southwestern United States. Navajo, like Indian tribe. Uh, in early February 2026, the newly uh, instated director of the Navajo Area Indian Health Service, NAIHS, took messaging provided by the CDC and modified this so it was more fear-based. His methods... Included taking this is this part's just funny, so that's why I'm just reading this. Taking the uh, tagline from a from a CDC message: "See your healthcare provider if you experience SARS-like symptoms." Simple message, but he took it and he said, and he added the phrase, "SARS can kill you." <laughs> At the end, uh, fewer Navajo came forward in the following weeks for treatment from the NIHS. Uh, for SPARS-like symptoms. Um, sensing a mistake had been made, the director reached out to tribal leadership. Uh, specifically, the, uh, the fear-based messaging was replaced with positive messages, including seeing healthcare providers for SPARS-like symptoms can help you and your family members live long and happy lives. There we go. Okay. Um, well, many of these local public uh, health outreach efforts successfully increased compliance with recommended health actions. They were not effective at reaching some special interest groups, including the growing national anti-Calcavir natural medicine movement, which was dispersed across the country and not concentrated in local areas. Kind of sounds like the sort of like uh, anti-vax movement, um, which is, uh, of course, with good reason. That we, uh, that we feel that way. Um, and they're also kind of like talking about what SPARS as a whole is about, which is this echo chamber, quote unquote, scenario where groups become harder to reach because they sort of like block out, uh, you know, for example, like U.S. Um, public health officials and like different like U.S. agency type social media platforms and all this. And they don't want those messages from like, say, for example, the CDC or the WHO or anything like that because they know that uh, they probably know it's bullshit. So that's what this what SPARS also deals a lot with is like, how do we reach people that are part of this echo chamber who don't want to hear us, you know, who uh, have biases and they they want to hear things that um, reflect their own beliefs uh, that. Yeah, that's their major focus. Is on, is on reaching people and reaching people outside of basically like that sort of like outside of the herd. Um, and if you, if you think about it as an added note, COVID probably actually wouldn't have even been possible without social media because social media gives them targeting abilities that uh, are way beyond traditional media. You know what I mean? 
they could run COVID ads to someone who was just like not having it and not about the bullshit, right? Not to mention that like, even if you just write the word COVID in, for example, like an Instagram post or a Facebook post, you're going to get that. Everyone knows the message. It's like, visit CDC for more information on this and that. Like they want to constantly tell you like, oh, this person's information might not be good enough. Make sure you go to the CDC or public health, you know, those like, those trusted organizations, quote unquote, right? And it's that constant, constant, like someone can't even just make fun of, you know, COVID and, uh, you know, <laughs> say it's a fucking hoax or whatever without that fucking uh, CDC um, message popping up. And then we got food for thought. I'll, uh, I'll read one of the questions. Um, how could pre-crisis partnerships and alliances have averted the potential for inconsistent messaging around calcavir safety and efficacy? Uh, what are the potential effects of unaligned official messages about MCM uh, medical uh, countermeasure safety and efficacy? Um, yeah. Anyway, on to the next chapter. Okay. Chapter five. Chapter five is called Going Viral. As the name says, this chapter kind of explores like um, sort of a reaction, almost an adverse reaction to Calcavir, you know, the, made, the made up drug that we're ta- or therapeutic that we're talking about here. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, so in this video, it explores... Um, there's sort of a, an adverse reaction video that starts going viral on social media and they start to talk about like how they, how they can mitigate and kind of suppress that and how they can then create a counter narrative that shows people, oh, don't listen to that crazy person, you know. Um, okay, so chapter five, going viral. Reports of negative side effects associated with Calcavir began uh, gaining traction in February 2026. Uh, Despite the negative response, public health agencies continued to make progress until February. Uh, When a video of a three-year-old boy in North Carolina who was hospitalized with spars and began projectile vomiting immediately after taking a dose of Calcavir went viral. Okay. In the video clip, the boy's physician administers a pediatric dose of liquid calcavir. A few moments later, the boy begins vomiting profusely, chokes, and then faints while his mother shrieks in the background. <laughs> then they got two examples of like uh, of social media posts, right? Uh, local child vomits immediately after taking calcavir, and you wonder why I will never give it to my child. Uh, calcavir is poison. Um, Twitter handle, hands off my kid on that one. Uh, Then we have Zoltan Humphreys says, kid looked like he was going to Ralph after taking Calcavir. Got it on video. Passed out in his own puke. Um, Right, okay. So these are people posting about this video that's going viral. Um, uh, This clip was widely shared across the United States with a variety of captions including... No Calcavir and natural is best. 
The hashtags in turn provided a way for people sharing these views to find one another and band together on social media. They formed ZapQ and other online discussion groups, which allowed them to receive any messages from group members via smartphone and internet uh, accessing technology, IAT, instantaneously as they were posted. Some members of the ZapQ groups even began to, full, uh, to use full-size 12 by 12 IAT screens with, on the backs of their jackets, coats, and backpacks to loop the vomiting video for all in their immediate vicinity to see. The social media uh, grounds well quickly overwhelmed the capacity of local, state, and federal agencies to respond, and compliance with public health and medical recommendations dropped considerably. Uh, the FDA and other government agencies quickly attempted to remind the public that correlation does not equate to causation. Okay? This is important. Like, correlation does not equate to, uh, to causation. Like, does this sound familiar? If, if, you've, uh, if you've been paying attention to what's going on here, right? One of the things they did with, uh, that they're doing every single day Every time another video comes out, like, you know, if, I, if a video right now were to go viral and uh, it was a video, say, of uh, someone who had experienced adverse reactions to one of the, uh, the COVID vaccines, right? Maybe they have tremors, Bell's palsy, whatever it might be. We're seeing a lot of that, right? Well, first of all, you'll see all the sheep in the comments being like, you guys are idiots or like, like they'll even like outright say that people are stupid for thinking they won't even say like, Oh my God, that's horrible. They won't even acknowledge the damage damage that's been done to someone, but they'll say something like correlation isn't causation. Like, yeah, sure. It's unfortunate about this, but like, you know, you're stupid. If you just think this is like, this is because of the vaccine. Maybe it was just this person's time to go or this, just like maybe this person that like was due for these health due for these health concerns or whatever like it's incredible too because they'll use a phrase like correlation does not equate to causation but then again they don't acknowledge that for the entirety of 2020 and 2021 any they've been calling deaths from like a t like just anything under the sun, if a person died with COVID, meaning they had had taken a positive PCR test or had received a, a a positive PCR test for COVID, they could then go and um, have a heart attack, and it would be called COVID. They could be hit by a car and die, and it would be called COVID, right? Oh, but correlation does not equate to causation, right? So. I mean, needless to say, massive, massive double, sta double standard going on here. And I don't know how, but the fucking sheep go along with that correlation does not equate to causation thing. They think they're being smart with that. Um, in the following weeks, officials from the FDA, CDC, and other government organizations attempted to promote positive, accurate information about Calcavir on several traditional and social media platforms in order to quell public fear. This messaging, however, was less than optimal, both in terms of timing and dissemination. 
Another thing too, um, I'd like to point out is that uh, I think the reason why they're in this chapter, they're exploring something going viral, but it's something as like uh, less or um, insignificant and uh, you know not very severe as just a kid vomiting, is because. They can still use that same like blueprint for a situation of how to like mitigate the spread of information online and all this and how to like hit it with other counter narratives to make the public feel safe about still continuing to take something. And they can talk about just a kid vomiting in a video when in actuality what they're actually exploring here is situations where videos go viral and it's a lot more serious, right? It's someone who uh, drops dead literally after taking up the vaccine or uh, gets Bell's palsy or has a stroke or whatever it might be, right? But they're just using this very like insignificant, not very severe situation or uh, story, hypothetical story of this kid who just pukes in a video. Like... Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, so several days to provide an emotionally um, – uh, while the government took several days to provide an emotionally appropriate message, the spread of the viral video on social media was exponentially faster. By the time the government responded, most people across the country had already seen the vomiting video and formed their own conclusions. Additionally, in their responses, government organizations were not able to effectively access all social media platforms. ZapQ groups, for example, had closed memberships and typically could only be accessed via invitations from group members. Uh, both of these issues prompted government organizations to improve timing and impact. Um, several members of Congress were very active on sites like Twitter where they could leverage their office to spread their own personal beliefs under the guise of public positions. In late May, one of these individuals, a former doctor and current senator from Iowa, responded to a second uh, vomiting video by tweeting, Don't be buffoons. Calcavir is 100% safe and 100% effective. Correlation does not equal causation. After being shared tens of thousands of times, the tweet was, Picked up by traditional media outlets, this led to multiple awkward news interviews with FDA and CDC officials who had to clarify that while the sentiment of the message was correct, Calcavir did have potential side effects and was not completely effective at treating spars. Um, by early June 2026, the video had become the most shared zap clip among junior high and high school students across the country who appreciated the shock factor of the video. As a result, the public was cont uh, continually re-exposed to the anti-Calcavir message from several months after the initial incident and subsequent responses. Then, of course, and then this, in this uh, food for thought section, um, I just want to point out, so it starts by saying, um, so communication dilemma, responding to the power of graphic images of a child in distress. One story is elevated to a population, population level problem. Uh, and I, yeah, so notice how the focus isn't on the health of the person uh, being affected, but what they're actually exploring here is 
Um, it's simply about controlling information and controlling the narrative, right? They're not discussing how they can create drugs that won't pay, make people sick. Um, then one of the, the food for thought questions is, why might communicating the science around MCM adverse effects alone not be enough to address the public's fear and concerns about a MCM like uh, Calcavir? Why is it also important to communicate with compassion, concern, and empathy? Well, I mean, communicating with compassion, concern, and empathy, it builds trust. And it's easy to dupe and sell your customers. Um, to what extent is having sufficient, uh, sufficiently skilled staff and organizational capacity to communicate via traditional media and social media platforms critical to influencing the public debates and awareness about a MCM medical countermeasure like Calcavir? What MCM communication challenges and opportunities are likely to emerge? Among up-and-coming youth audiences who are avid consumers of interactive and visual forms of information. So yeah, it's all about the con controlling the narrative and controlling uh, information on social media. That's a that's a big part of what this uh, entire spars pandemic uh, document really like covers. It's all about just controlling the narrative, controlling the narrative. Um, yeah. Chapter six is a short chapter. It's called The Grass is Always Greener. Um, to sum it up, what they're mostly talking about is, um, you know, as confidence in Calcavir continued to deteriorate across the United States, the United Kingdom and, and Europe uh, introduced basically another drug called VMAX. And uh, what they essentially explore in this uh, chapter here is how they can um, essentially suggest to the public to continue to use Calcavir over this foreign uh, drug that they don't have like enough, um, say, U.S. information and testing on. Um, supposedly what's going on in this scenario, I guess to some degree this the world still works in a somewhat nationalistic way, although based on what I've learned over the last year and a half, it definitely seems like there's obviously very... Uh, it's all very interconnected, right? And, and, and the nationalistic borders that we think sort of exist probably don't exist quite as much as we think because of organizations like the United Nations and World Health Organization and World Economic Forum and things like this. Anyway, what they do in this chapter is they, they have a few, for example, social media posts that people uh, have put out, out uh, Twitter type thing. Um, this one is uh, from the EU Medicines Agency. It says, authorized today the US, uh, the use of VMAX antiviral for SPARS, better, uh, better safer profile than Calcavir, equally effective. Um, another one, finally getting over SPARS thanks to my VMAX. Felt better in a matter of hours. Didn't boke or nothing. I guess boke means like puke or something. Um, didn't boke or nothing. VMAX works. Suck it, spars. Uh, next one. VMAX is useless. Still sick with spars. Plus, now I'm doing unthinkable things to the toilet. Well done. <laughs> Tags EMA News and um, hashtag VMAX sucks. Anyway, uh, the food for thought questions in this one are, are kind of interesting. Um... 
How might pre-tested messages uh, comparing U.S. and foreign MCM review processes have enabled the U.S. FDA and U.S. CDC to support the USG decision to promote Calcavir as the antiviral of choice? Uh, what responsibilities, if any, does the FDA have to advise Americans to avoid using VMAX? How can the FDA and other public health entities best support the public when making informed medical countermeasure choices to protect their health? How should local public health and healthcare providers address patients' questions about the risks and benefits of foreign MCMs? Um, it seems like, although this is a really short chapter, what they're mostly discussing for in terms of how they'll apply this in a real world setting is like how they can uh, discuss ways to diminish um, the reputation of foreign drugs that like that aren't vaccines. Um, things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Um, essentially, I, again, just more controlling of the narrative and, and they were also kind of like uh, looking at from from a kind of like foreign type uh kind of a foreign um, relations and, and all this, because I guess another thing as well, right, is what they don't want is some small country, and I'm just kind of thinking about this now, some small country, for example, that like, say, for example, like a Tanzania with like President John Magafui or something like some country like that, that maybe creates some, you know, some drug that uh, that they don't want coming to market to essentially compete with uh, the vaccine or something that like big pharma is pushing, right? Something like an ivermectin or a hydroxychloroquine, something like that to kind of rise up out of some small country and compete with the vaccine, right? So I, I, I think that's why they're exploring that with uh, with this particular chapter. Okay, chapter seven is called The Voice. It's kind of a big chapter. Uh, they explore some pretty crazy, weird ideas, and you'll see the, the sort of relevance now to what's going on. Uh, it starts off by saying, by May 26, public interest in SPARS had begun to wane. Public interest in SPARS. Uh, again, like a pandemic that needs marketing. Okay. A pandemic that needs a marketing campaign. That kind of sounds like COVID, right? The public interest is beginning to wane. Like in a real pandemic scenario, you wouldn't need to convince the public that there was a pandemic ha happening. Okay. People would be able to look out their window and you'd be, you would see... You would see it happening in front of your eyes, okay? You you would have already at this point, you would have stepped over some dead bodies, okay? You would have left your house, been walking on the street, and see someone collapse to the ground, okay? Let's not let's not pretend that that's not what an actual pandemic would look like, okay? Anything else other than that is literally a blip, okay? It's just regular cold and flu, right? Regular respiratory diseases, regular things, heart attack, stroke that happen all the time anyway, right? That's why it's fucking retarded. I had some kid to, uh, today who um, who said something, he responded to some like story or something I'd posted on Instagram and he was like, 
LOL. People are dying and you don't care. Uh, where do you even begin with, uh, with that level of stupidity? I mean, first of all, people have always been dying, right? But if, if COVID were a real fucking pandemic, there would be no convincing, okay? There wouldn't be this giant, giant fucking marketing campaign. Anyway, in late April, the CDC had pu- uh, publicized an updated case fatality rate estimate. Uh, suggesting that SPARS was only fatal in 0.6% of cases in the United States where access to medical treatment was available. Um, This figure matched public sentiment widely expressed on social media that SPARS was not as dangerous as initially thought. Combined with uh, persisting doubts about Calcavir and the lack of commercially available SPARS vaccine, the new uh, lower case fatality rate estimate led to the public to grow increasingly hostile towards continued sparse messaging. You can see why they're talking about this, right? In order to overcome the public's disinterest, the CDC, again, disinterest, the public's disinterest, because like we're starting to get to that point now where some of the people who initially were even like completely asleep are... There's new people waking up every day. Like, don't get me wrong. It should, like, everyone, more people should have woken up by now, but there are, there's got to be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people every single day across the world right now who are waking up to what's going on, right? You know, yes, there are a lot of stupid sleeping sheep out there, right? But, like, you know, there's people who even today, August, uh, what, August 15th, I think it is, 2021, uh, or 16th, actually. There's people, there, I guarantee there's someone, if not thousands of people out there today, okay, more than a year and a half into this, that just woke up today, you know? They just saw a video or a piece of data or something that finally made them, like, take another look at this and they finally fucking woke up. Right. Anyway, in order to overcome the public's disinterest, the CDC and FDA in in concert with other government agencies and their uh, social media experts began developing a a new public health messaging campaign about SPARS, Calcavir and the forthcoming vaccine Coravax. So now we're starting to get into a vaccine Coravax. Uh, The purpose of this campaign was to create a core set of messages that could be shared by the public health and government agencies over the next several months during which the SPARS vaccine would be introduced. Even though the disease was less fatal than initially thought, it remained expensive to treat it in severe form and even mild cases had substantial impacts on economic productivity across the country. In late May, three messages were approved by the cross-agency committee established a to to produce the messaging campaign one addressing the nature and risk of spars one regarding the effectiveness of calcavir and one about the anticipated release of coravax these messages were broadly shared via all rele- relevant government um, agencies internet and social media accounts in effort to further reach certain population groups this is where it gets important in order in order to further reach certain population uh, subgroups Agency officials enlisted the help of well-known scientists, celebrities, okay, 
and government officials to make short videos and zap clips. In a few cases, give interviews to major media outlets. Um, among those chosen were former President Jacqueline Bennett. Okay, I think they're talking about Obama here because Obama, as you have seen, he had a vaccine message. He had a COVID message and all this. They've used him quite a bit for that. You know, there's still a large majority of the population that actually likes and trusts Obama. <laughs> if they only knew. He's, I mean, he's one of the worst presidents ever. Um, BZ. Okay, so uh, President Jacqueline Bennett. BZ, a popular hip-hop star. Okay, we've definitely seen some hip-hop hip stars that also promoted the vaccine, promoted like COVID, staying safe, social distancing, whatever, masks, all this shit. Oh, I saw one recently of Arnold Schwarzenegger saying like, your freedoms don't matter. Just get the vaccine. Fuck your freedom. Come on. There's a bomb in the pool. Anyway, um, so I mean, and you know, anyone with a brain just lost a lot of uh, respect in Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, the Terminator will, Terminator will never be the same. Um, and actually, I, you know what? There was a time back in the day where I was into uh, working out and uh, weightlifting a little bit more than I am now. And I uh, watched that documentary called Pumped. Was it called Pumped or Pump? And it was that Arnold Schwarzenegger and like bodybuilding uh, documentary. Um, and I liked him in that. That was that was pretty cool. But yeah, this fucking recent clip. I knew he, Arnold Schwarzenegger obviously fucking sold out a long time ago. Um, BZ, a popular hip hop star and Paul Farmer, co-founder of Partners in Health and a renowned global health expert. The campaign produced mixed results. Common messaging did reduce public confusion, um, evinced by a 15 to 23% increase in public correct, in the public correct understanding of SPARS and Calcavir in national polls. Correct understanding, eh? Meaning the understanding that they want you to have. Uh, Understanding of spars and Calcavir in national polls. While common messaging resulted in more cohesive traditional media coverage, the celebrity outreach campaign was more problematic. Uh, then they show some like tweets from this guy BZ, this hip hop star. When I said yesterday that I was proud of the black community's contribu uh, contribution to the to these Tuskegee uh, uh, research, I meant that I was um, proud of how they remained strong in the face of adversity. I am saddened by the injustice and suffering, suffering they experienced, but I still strongly support the CDC and FDA's recommendations to take Calcavir and Corvax to stop spars. Vaccines work. Hashtag vaccines work. Um, so BZ's original zap clip was widely shared, particularly amongst African-American and urban populations. So they know that... The black community, and this is like, this is true in real world data as well, eh? That's why they're exploring this. They know that like African Americans, rightfully so, are highly skeptical when it comes to vaccines. Based off of like history and like, you know, uh, is it Tuskegee or, yeah, I, uh, the Tuskegee incident, right? Or Tuskegee. Um, anyway, 
African Americans on a whole are statistically more vaccine hesitant, quote unquote, or more skeptical of vaccines. So that's why they're exploring this here. Um, African American and urban populations, however, in an interview aired on Access Hollywood during which he was asked about the accelerated clinical trials for Coravax, BZ noted his admiration for those who, who volunteered to participate in the trials, like Tuskegee research trials, uh, and then compared these recent volunteers to volunteers in previous health-related studies, including the men who volunteered at Tuskegee. Tuskegee. Um, the resulting backlash, particularly from African-Americans, undermined the effectiveness of BZ's efforts. So he's saying like, yo, uh, props to those who did volunteer, even though this is like a, obviously a stain in uh, American history, and especially in relation to African-Americans. Uh, not, long after, not long after, 60 Minutes aired a live nationally broadcast interview with former President Bennett. Um, when asked if, if she would want her new grandson to receive Calcavir, Bennett, Bennett caught off guard, paused, and eventually gave a hesitant, somewhat contradictory response. Well, I, I, uh, experts say the drug is safe, and it's, it's not easy, but I think everyone should make the decision that's best for their family. Right? So uh, video clips from this interview were shared widely on social media and by traditional media outlets leading many healthcare professionals and members of the public to criticize Bennett for not taking a strong stance in support of Calcavir. Oh my God. That's another thing I, I fucking uh, hate is um, the fucking sheep. Oh my God. These useful fucking idiots. They, you'll even notice that when, when there's a politician out there who is like saying like, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have the vaccine for those who want it or something like that. They're like, he should have taken a strong stance. Like they want more like authoritarian fucking dictate dictatorship over their over people's rights. Like I no joke. A lot of them like the really sick ones. If you were to to really ask them their opinion and get a real answer out of them, some of them do actually want us, the freedom fighters and free thinkers and quote-unquote, anti-vaxxers and, and this, to, they want us thrown into internment camps. They, they really honestly fucking do. If, if, and where do you think they got that idea from, right? They just so willingly adopt these ideas that are planted into their heads and they don't, they don't fully fucking think, like, they don't spot patterns, eh? Like, they, I guess... They never took anything away from like the the Bolshevik revolution or any like sort of like communism throughout history or or totalitarian dictatorships, communist takeovers, you know, World War One, World War Two. None of this really registered with them. Like they say, you know, they, they say that they care, they say that they understand these things, but when it's happening right now, we're pretty much in a genocide right now, right? And not to mention people's rights are being stripped away, rights and freedoms being stripped away. We might, by the coming fucking fall, winter, we might be in full fucking martial law, right? Will that be the, the time when these people finally pull their fucking heads out of their asses? And will, be, will that be too late? You know, it, it's fucking disgusting. I'm not gonna lie, at this point, I honestly... Um, 
there is a level of hate <laughs> that I uh, that I have for these people for literally just being so gullible and so ignorant, but not just the ignorance, it's the arrogance that goes along with it. These are the ones I really dislike. The ones I really hate are the ones where it's like, it's one thing to be ignorant, but to also be arrogant and cocky about it and be so sure that you know everything and that everyone's just a conspiracy theorist, right? It's like when the time comes, okay, and they finally fucking pull their head out of their ass and they realize what's actually going on here and that we've been right the whole time and that it's probably too late at that point. Like, I, like these people don't deserve mercy. They're the ones, they're truly the reason why we're in this, right? The politicians are one thing, right? They're fucking disgusting, you know, leeches and all blood-sucking leeches and all this. And then, of course, you have the fucking, like, elite or uh, ruling class bloodlines and all this, which are obviously the worst, right? But truly speaking, this wouldn't happen unless we had so many fucking compliant, obedient sheep. So they are truly the, the, they are truly the worst people. Like, wake up. Realize these hard truths. Accept them. Otherwise, you're not going to have shit, okay? You're going to be a fucking AI being living in a fucking smart city and anyway um yeah notice here i have like that they're kind of exploring this sort of token token black celebrity hip-hop artist endorsement um to influence the black community right we've we see this we see this like they use people like jay-z beyonce obama oprah winfrey um etc to, and they use NBA basketball players, uh, football players, all this to, to push these vaccines, to push the COVID narrative, all that. Uh, the aftermath of the inter- interview, however, did galvanize many House and Senate Republicans to support Calcavir use in earnest in an effort to d- demonstrate their opposition to form the to, to from the former de- uh, Democratic president. Anyway, that's not that important. Food for thought. Uh, given the ability of powerful popular figures to reinforce or undermine the public health messages, what steps might health authorities at either national or local levels take to reverse the negative effects of BZ's unintended linkage to the uh, Tuskegee and Coravax or Bennett's tepid, uncertain support of Calcavir? So here they're discussing what steps could we take to reverse negative effects of messaging that goes out like unintentionally or with sort of a, a misconstrued message from what they actually originally wanted to go out. Okay. Again, just more controlling the narrative and specifically talking about a community, the black community, African-American community that is a little more vaccine hesitant, quote unquote, than some other uh, demographics. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I've actually decided I'm going to do the Spars Pandemic document in three parts. So here's part one, chapter one to seven. Thanks for tuning in to Debunk Daily.